Hi everyone, it's Guillaume from Startup Basecamp. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. During the show, you will have the opportunity to meet the best climate tech founders, investors, and experts from both Silicon Valley and around the globe. They will share with you their stories and personal journeys into this growing and exciting industry, giving you some insight into the ecosystems that help you to take part in the fight against climate change and benefit from the opportunities it can represent podcast is divided in two small interviews. During the first part, you will get to know our speakers, their perspectives on the climate crisis and how climate tech is changing the game. Second part of the discussion will be for members of our community who will learn the speaker's secret sauce on how to and share with you their unique expertise on topics such as fundraising, management, strategy and so on to help you to become a better leader in your field. So before we start, I would like to quickly share what we are doing at Startup Basecamp to support climate tech founders in accessing resources and gaining visibility with investors they seek. Our initiatives include a membership-based community platform offering access to a dedicated Slack group with a growing number of founders, experts, and investors from around the world and a series of exclusive content such as interviews, weekly job listings, events, and our quarterly online pitch of night opportunity. But more than a place where you can learn, exchange, and grow, we are building a matchmaking service to facilitate connections between our members and top investors and experts in the field. And soon, alongside with other top investors, we will be launching a small fund to co-invest in the growth and acceleration of our members. Finally, all of this is possible because of your support and donations. We are a small self-funded team, and we want you to be part of this collective movement against climate change. So please share one episode with a friend and subscribe to the channels. As an added bonus, we will plant a tree for each of our subscribers each time we reach 1,000 new fans or donors. Do not hesitate to connect with me via social media or email guillaume at Startup Basecamp. Thanks a lot for listening. I hope to get in touch with you soon. And now, let's go for the show. Hi, everyone. During this new episode of our founder series, we're sitting down with Troy Carter, founder and CEO at Archives Labs, an open source community developing the first unified land use model for landowners, investors, and policymakers to scale regenerative land management globally and tackle the ongoing ecological collapse. I was super excited and intrigued to learn more about Archot Labs and their open source community of engineers who gather together in a quest to build the most advanced machine learning model using data available from satellite imagery, underground observations, and other data source to measure and map the various ecosystems around the world. A perfect example of how tech can bring an edge never seen before in the fight against climate change and environmental collapse. On top of the technological and scientific rigor applied by the people involved, the project is also led by deep selflessness and love, given that its co-founders first met at a spiritual retreat in Hawaii. During the show, we will learn more about what's next for Archot Labs in terms of development, financing models, and how you can collaborate with them today. 
And the second part of the talk, Troy will share his secret source from his fundraising experience as a climate tech entrepreneur and their innovative investment structure using a rolling safe note that is tokenized with an Ethereum-based smart contract. Finally, we will conclude with his view on how to keep a good work-life balance while being a busy founder. Troy, welcome to the show. Hi, Troy. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. We are super happy and excited to uh, have you here today. So before we start, as usual, uh, can you give us a 30-second intro about Upshot Labs? Totally. So thanks for having me. Yeah, the 30-second overview. Earthshot Labs is an open source community and technology company building the technology backbone for ecological regeneration at a planetary scale. And what does that mean more specifically? The first is we're building the first global open source maps of comprehensive ecosystems, including water, soil, forests, and biodiversity. And once we have an accurate way enough of measuring ecosystems, a whole lot of different products are unlocked in order to incentivize landowners, policymakers, and investors to make better land decisions to address climate, to address climate change and also restore nature for its own sake. Fantastic. So let, let's start by the, by the top. Can you tell us uh, a bit more about, uh, about you, Troy? Uh, your story, background, I saw that you uh, started uh, with uh, Airbnb, uh, then uh, you're also, you are and uh, have been a finance consultant, uh, co-founder of, uh, of Rhizome, another uh, clean climate tech uh, in the you know, construct tech uh, uh, business. Um, so Tell us a little bit more about this, uh, this journey, uh, your story, and maybe anything specific that you also love to do uh, besides, uh, you know, uh, working uh, in climate change and uh, climate tech. Really? So for sure, the, the labels on my professional career, I think covers up quite a varied and interesting trajectory. Um, you know, so the, my, my previous position and what I'm still involved in is as a co-founder of Rhizome, we're pioneering large-scale reforestation and bamboo-engineered lumber manufacturing in Southeast Asia. And it was really through that experience that Earthshot Labs was born because we recognized that there were fundamental broken financial systems for um, economically incentivizing proper land use. And land use is the biggest, it's like the biggest challenge on earth right now. Uh, it's not just a climate crisis that we're in, even though yes, there is a lot of CO2 going into the atmosphere that's causing global warming. The bigger issue is actually the ecological collapse itself with the degradation of species, the degradation of forests, the degradation of oceans, and that in itself um, is, it's really intense to be up close and personal with that theme. And so I think throughout my entire journey, that has been a prominent focus, as is with probably almost every young person today, um, as well as many other people that have sort of like faced this awakening process for a long time. But you know, go ask any 14 year old, like, hey, what are some of the world issues that you care about? Probably like 
climate change and ecological destruction is going to be pretty much at the top of the list. So I'm definitely not unique in this process. I'm just responding to the challenges of the moment. And, you know, the last seven years, so actually I, I, I built a company and sold it uh, in San Francisco and then moved to Hawaii for the last seven years, which uh, I did, you know, different project consulting work, um, project finance and fundraising for things like commercial composting facilities and real renewable energy projects. And um, that was really great. But actually the biggest chunk of time was really spent running retreats and a retreat center with my wife. Um, and that is just as deep of a process to be deeply involved with spiritual community building, deep intimacy with nature. I would say that has informed my journey just as much as any professional um, academic or technology experience, because what we're building at Earthshot is a bridge. And it's a bridge between a deep intimate relationship with nature and love for nature for its own sake with the technological rigor to be able to go create incentive structures and monitoring systems that actually allow that level of intimacy and um, care to scale globally and to create incentive systems for that, that mirror that love for nature versus sort of view nature as a resource to be extracted. So we're also, you know, we're working with a, a shift in worldview and codifying systems that, that take into account the true value of this earth. So before we go uh, a little bit, uh, you know, deeper into uh, Outshot Labs, um, can you give us maybe like a, a macro overview of like uh, the use of uh, machine learning uh, to prevent uh, or to learn more about uh, the effect of, uh, of climate change uh, or helping in, uh, you know, uh, planetary uh, restoration? And really like what are those models bringing into the fight uh, that we yeah. didn't have like a few years back. I mean, what needs, I would say, uh, to happen now to, to, to scale those models to really have like a full uh, contribution to the, the net zero goal that uh, we're all uh, you know, yeah. seeking uh, for? Yeah. So we have a, a you know, in, in uh, like philanthropic speakers, it's called a theory of change. So we have a theory of change of how the This is all going to go down. The first step is if you can measure it, then you can incentivize for it. And the second step is that it's not a software problem, that it's a physical problem. So the first step is measurement. We have unprecedented satellite imagery, aerial imagery, and on the ground site observations more than ever before on in the history of the planet. So, so satellite imagery, You know, the last couple of years, we've had this amazing satellite called JEDI up on the International Space Station taking spaceborne LIDAR, which is a highly valuable data set that very few academics have looked at because it's like hundreds and hundreds of terabytes big. Um, we also have, you know, modern, um, very, like every day the planet is scanned by satellites. There's heat imagery, there's historical data that now has essentially a, basically a combination of either free or low cost satellite imagery, computing power that is unprecedented where we can build actually technically uh, very complex models that actually integrates all of the satellite imagery. 
And we have things like drones and aerial LIDAR to actually build training data sets for specific ecosystems around the world. So one, we can measure things more accurately than ever before. And we're gonna actually continue that process at Earthshots. So Earthshots also going to release an app probably in the next month called Biome, which is a citizen science app for everyone to be able to use the amazing capacity of the smartphone, these supercomputers walking around in our pockets uh, to take LIDAR scans and volumetric scans of trees and take pictures of trees with geotags to build the largest um, on the ground site observation database on earth because that's actually where the missing link is. I wish we could say that satellite imagery was enough to do everything we need and it's not the case, at least not right now. So we actually need on the ground verification by people um, that are doing monitoring in a highly scalable way. So we took a we took a lesson out of John Hankey and the Google Maps team. John Hankey also started Pokemon Go. Um, we took a leaf out of his page, which was, hey, if you want to scale up um, accurate maps, have everyone contribute to it rather than just a group of professional verifiers, which is how it's done now. So if everyone on earth is contributing and getting rewarded for taking site observations, which is a concrete and actionable way for everyone on earth to be meaningfully engaged with the climate crisis, then the world's gonna change. So we build one, a really accurate map of the world. The second, we've formed an open source community that is built, taking all the satellite imagery and data sources and building machine learning models to, like I said, build accurate models of forest, soil, water, and biodiversity. And that's not something that's been done either, where it's just a big open source coalition where we're trying to form a globally coherent way of measuring things. One of the things that's been challenging over the past few years is there's many companies that are just like, we are going to measure things more accurately than the other companies, right? And we're going to have a competitive advantage and moat because we can use better satellite imagery or we can use better machine learning. And I think that this is a limited viewpoint of if we continue with black box solutions, no one's going to trust the output, the UN or credit carbon credit buyers or different governments. Like why would we trust the output um, if we can't see and have a peer reviewed process and globally coherent? So it's the same way of measuring things all around the world. So that's the next step, measure it, have it be globally coherent and open source, and then create incentive structures around it. So incentive structures are basically, why do people cut down trees? You know, why is there massive deforestation in the Amazon and Congo Basin? Why is the Southeast Asia almost 100% deforested? And why uh, is Western and Central Africa just like um, being deforested at a massive rate? It's because people need to eat or international corporations or interests come in um, for lumber and or to cut down the forests and plant soybeans and cattle. So we need to change the financial systems that incentivize people to cut down the trees or to degrade landscapes in other way. So that means paying people. Right now, the clearest market lever for that is through carbon credits, which I believe are a good system, but not a great system. But for now, that's, the, that's what we have. So carbon markets, and in the future, more fully valuing the service, like what we call ecosystem services, which are essentially, here are the things that nature does for humans um, in terms of, but it's, it's more than that because 
nature is valuable for its own sake. And we, it's going to be very hard to measure all the ways in which humans benefit or whether it's just good for the planet as a whole, or it's just pretty, right? Or it's just, that's what life is. And we want to want to ensure the continuation of life. And so we're trying more and more to measure things that are hard to measure mm-hmm. so that, so that people can, so we can essentially bring nature into economic systems. So step one's carbon credits. And uh, then we've got a lot of other stuff on our plate that we can talk about in a few minutes. Cool. So b- before we go in, uh, in, 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 uh, in those different uh, scenarios or potential outcomes of uh, Earthshot Labs, let's go a bit deeper on like, uh, maybe let's start with the, the, the story. How did you meet your co-founder and what was the motivation uh, you know, that made the, the magic between you guys? Totally. So Patrick, is my co-founder of this project. And I will just want to say there's a lot of other people involved, hundreds and hundreds of contributors and collaborators and partner organizations. We're doing this in a highly collaborative way. So even organizations that would have formerly be considered competitors, uh, you know, we're working very closely with. So how did we meet? We met at a spiritual retreat uh, where I was living in Hawaii and You know, his background, he worked for uh, a decade at Google doing things like Google Maps and duplex AI and emerging markets and um, also was the CTO at Two Sigma Private Investments. So sort of like investing background, tech background, um, my sort of, you know, regenerative ag reforestation background. Like there's a very obvious synthesis for us to be able to have a pretty unique way of viewing solutions to the climate crisis. And I said, what I said before, bringing technological rigor with soulfulness. And the response that we've gotten, you know, this that, that might be seem like a sort of weird competitive advantage, just like soulfulness plus technological rigor is the, is what we're doing. And why is that interesting? It's interesting because the sort of teams we've been able to form right now, we have five project teams, um, open source project teams, people working, world-class people, academics, institutions, tech people, working a lot to address these issues, all on volunteer labor um, so far. That is a level of motivation that can't be convinced, right? People have to be intrinsically passionate about nature and about solving a hard tech problems uh, to contribute like that. And the amount of response that we've gotten over the last eight months of working on this project has been amazing. So in a, with a community of more than a thousand people now with academic and institutional partnerships that we could not have dreamed of if we are doing this in a way that that we see a lot right now, which is sort of like an opportunistic view of the climate crisis. Like, ooh, like there's some land arbitrage that's going to happen that's going to be massive. Oh, okay, I can I can do value capture on that. Or, okay, satellite imagery is good enough. I can do value capture because um, all of these different companies need accurate ecosystem monitoring. It's not like that, right? It's speaking from a place where there's a deep love and care for actually addressing the problem and where the organization is formed towards that purpose. And so everyone involved is deeply passionate and committed to 
using whatever strategy in order to affect that purpose. So it's, it's a new sort of organization as well. Fantastic. So um, maybe let's go a little bit deeper on, into the, uh, the algorithm and the, the, the machine learning uh, model that you guys mm -hmm. uh, have, uh, at least uh, as an MVP today. So how did you uh, start to you know, write the, the, the first line of code? I mean, uh, I, I guess your co-founder and this, uh, totally. this uh, amazing uh, crowd of, of supporters that, uh, that you have. And, and how do you coordinate all of those, uh, all of those contributors? Um, how do you evaluate the, the, the output of your, of your model? And, and, and in a way, how do you collect the data uh, from that uh, model as well? Yeah, great question. So... So far, this has been an open source grant funded, funded by the National Science Foundation. Um, the first month, we were like, okay, let's just invite 50 of our friends and hack something together and see if we have something here and just see, see what we can do. Maybe there's something in this space that a bunch of, you know, ML and data science people can contribute to. And after about a month working, we realized, wow, above ground biomass modeling, water restoration uh, modeling for like things like check dams and beaver dam analogs and shallow injection wells and, you know, statistical modeling of soil organic carbon. Like these have not been done in a rigorous way with any sort of global reach. And we were, we were rather actually unimpressed with what had been done so far. So we hit the cutting edge of science in like a month and like, okay, if we can do this in a month, Imagine what we could do in a year or five years. So we just kept going. Um, more and more contributors came on board. Um, and what do we actually do? So each research team around water, soil, and forests has a bit of a different mission. And you can go to our website, look at the research page. It'll tell you all the different methods, the different satellite imagery and ground sources, the different partners that we're working with. So if you want to get involved, just, just go to earthshop.eco. There's a very easy onboarding process. You can join the Slack group and attend one of the weekly welcome calls. Um, coordination is a bit of a trick. And generally, it's a pretty free-form organization. We really love... Um, there's a book called Reinventing Organizations by Frederick Lou And... Um, maybe you're familiar with it. And it references something called teal organizations, which is a way for sovereign, independently motivated people to collaborate on a project that they deeply believe in, where everyone has the authority to go act on behalf of the project. And we've seen that that style of management attracts really great people. And so that's really what we're doing. We have We have team leads for each of the research teams that sort of manage organization, have people's needs get met. But otherwise, there's just a weekly or maybe sometimes twice a week calls with each team or they chat on the Slack group and assign tasks and then go do it. And there's a pretty clear research plan. The technical scope of above ground biomass estimation, soil modeling for uh, organic soil carbon, and water restoration modeling, there are some known problems that need to be worked on. And, and so we just have you know, a six month research plan right now. And after six months, once we complete that, then we'll go on to the next layer of complexity. Um, yeah, so broadly, uh, satellite imagery, 
trained through machine la- machine learning on localized data sources um, of site observations, soil or like soil organic carbon testing, um, tree stand data from organizations, uh, whether government or private organizations. Um, and yeah, I'll just leave that there for now. And if you want to get more into technical no, no, complexity, make sense. I would say and go uh, visit I... the website, join the okay. weekly welcome call. So yeah. what I was, uh, what I was saying is like... join the welcome call and get on a project team. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, so j- just a little bit more about the, the, the technical aspect of, of it. Um, uh, how long do you think your, um, I mean, models uh, and machine learning, I mean, uh, is learning along the way uh, based on the amount of data and the way how you uh, you built and make your model uh, evolving? Um, when or how long do you think it takes uh, in one of those categories, like, uh, um, you know, a carbon sequestration or maybe like, uh, the, the the water uh, management that you are mentioning. How long does it take f- for a model, in a way, to provide uh, sufficient output that you you can be uh, satisfied and start to use it in the different uh, potential application? And how do you, uh, in a way, challenge those data, those uh, output uh, that you get uh, out of the model, yeah. uh, to ensure that indeed uh, the quality or the measurement or uh, the reference that you are uh, putting out there uh, makes sense on the ground too? Um, yeah, if that makes that's sense. a great question. So each research team is totally different. These are very discrete problems. Let's take above ground biomass um, as an example. There have been great academic studies on North America, on European forests. That is super good. There's, you know, um, government training data sites where they measure with tape measures and use allometric equations on different species. So that's pretty well known. One of the challenges is global reach. Another challenge is going into different ecosystems. And that's where essentially we need to extend existing models uh, for global reach and also bring in new higher resolution uh, satellite imagery like JEDI, which can do um, is space-borne LIDAR, which means it can do different canopy height and um, canopy complexity. Um, and also collecting a lot more site observations. So one, we can take a current Uh, state how much biomass is in the forest right now. We can do a simulation based on predicted regrowth rates. So what will happen over 30 years? What would happen with active reforestation? What would happen with passive reforestation? And then in order to actually go generate a carbon credit, for example, to the, the error bars have to be narrowed. We can't just use satellite imagery. So in order to air, lower those error bars, we need training data from each ecosystem that we'll be working with. And so the combination of satellite imagery and crowdsourced training data is, is a really key thesis for us. For water restoration, we actually have some pretty cool uh, outputs already. Um, one is a machine learning classifier for low-tech earthen, um, sort of like permaculture style land interventions. This includes check dams, beaver dam analogs, small reservoirs, um, shallow injection wells. And a great case studies was done by a friend of mine, Rajendra Singh. He organized about 100,000 people in India over the last 30 years to restore seven rivers from being totally dry to flowing again, restoring livelihoods of tens of millions of people. And this was done through little check dams 
thing and like basically things that beavers would have done in centuries past, but we killed all the beavers or most of them. Um, and so that is a compelling reason to scale tiny land-based interventions across landscapes that have massive, massive effects. And to our knowledge, this is not something that's ever been done before. And so we're taking, we're taking a unique approach in this area because we think of water restoration as a very complex holistic system and identify problems in academia that no one's ever applied permaculture principles or swales to uh, a machine learning algorithm before. It just hasn't been done. And so the first part is this machine learning classifier. Where do we actually put the interventions? It's like the second part is a simulation. Where exactly on the landscape do you build the check dams? So within you know a very, a very uh, narrow band here, you should put swales and here's where they go. And here's how you build them. And then the third part of the simulation, which is much more complex, is what would happen to the landscape's water cycle once you go, once you go do this. And part of this is using existing data. So for example, uh, there's about 60,000 known large dams in the world. And large dams are actually pretty bad for the environment generally. But there's probably about 16 million small dams. So from beavers or from human activity, and so we're building a machine learning and computer vision model right now to identify all 16 million um, beaver dams and view their changes on vegetation, on water cycles in that region over the past 30 years. So that's really cool. Um, so rather than us sort of uh, knowing what the output will be of building a small intervention like that, we can actually see from existing interventions, what the effect was in different ecosystems, in different soil types, in different climate regions, um, and be able to make recommendations based on that. And in terms of the review process, you asked, so I would say we don't have a formal review process right now. This is still a young project. We are forming a scientific advisory board. So where we'll send all of this stuff, the GitHub files, the outputs, the methods, to a panel of the most respected scientists in each area. So for example, Andy Hudak and Karen Riley for above ground biomass estimation, who've been doing this for a long time and be like, you guys are on the right track or this is awful. You need to go think, rethink your methods. Um, and so one is the peer review process. The other is that everyone engaged in this area should be able to review all of the code all of the methods. So we believe in radically open source data in this way, um, because that's the only way we're gonna build trust. So anyone should be able, to, be able to submit comments that we can go through our own internal process. Okay, so is Earthshot um, uh, available uh, everywhere today or you are covering like specific area in the world uh, right now? Yeah, so Different models have a different coverage. Right now, we don't have a front end that's accessible. You can go to our GitHub, look at all the back end machine learning model work. But in the coming months, we're going to release a product called LandOS. And LandOS is sort of like what people will think of when they, like we've been doing basic research, like back end science-y ecosystem stuff, but that's actually not accessible to a normal landowner. And that's actually where the problem is. There's a lot of this research has actually already been done but no one's done anything with it. So LandOS will be 
the place where any landowner or person with land agency can go to a website, click on their parcel or draw their parcel and be able to derive many, many insights on how to use their land in the most regenerative way possible, whether that's for conservation, for measuring biodiversity and carbon credits, uh, for doing water restoration, for making regenerative agricultural interventions um, or other interventions that can take particularly marginal landscapes. So arid landscapes or seasonally arid landscapes or in places that have undergone deforestation and identify economically viable ways to do regeneration, to get paid for conservation. So like we said, first step, research, science, and measurement. Second step is landowner access. Everyone on earth needs the information and also the monetization pathway to actually go do regeneration. So landowner access is land OS and the monetization pathway can look different at different times. So maybe it's carbon credits and through our system, through remote and crowdsource verification, and then onboarding and carbon credit onto a blockchain-based transparent ledger, um, also with voluntary you know, carbon credit third-party certification, um, anyone on earth will be eligible to get carbon credits on their land, which is very different than how it works right now. Um, but that's just one pathway. Another could be uh, a water intervention that there's a supplier that bids on the platform uh, that we can also de-risk if we understand the impact on land value or, or impact on agricultural water uh, availability. So we need to provide zero risk and zero cost ecological interventions for landowners as well. So that's also what we're calling reforestation as a service, um, which is de-risking ecological regeneration. Can you tell us a little bit more, I mean, if any of them are existing or at least at the, probably they are doing like a, a piece of what uh, you guys are achieving here uh, in terms of competition uh, in the US, in the EU, uh, any, any competitors or you see them as more like collaborators in a way? So we've got some of both, I would say. Um, this is a very nascent field. And so the size of the problem that we're addressing is in the billions of acres. You know, this is a planetary scale problem. And so the scale of the opportunity is massive. So obviously there are other companies that are thinking about this and working on this. No one that we know is taking the approach that we are. Um, there's actually a great organization in Europe that we've been talking to called Open Geo Hub, who also has the same thesis around open source data and modeling that we really believe in. And, and any open source project like that, let's collaborate, like awesome, let's do it. Uh, for companies developing black box solutions, and I'm thinking a company like Indigo doing soil modeling or Sylvia Terra and CX doing forest modeling in the US. We believe that these are essentially short-term short -term competitive moats, but they're not long-term competitive moats. And so, Any of these companies working on competitive solutions with black box ways of measuring things, um, give us a call. Let's collaborate and bring your data into an open source methodology that actually solves the fundamental issue rather than just trying to do value capture for a few years for your company. Um, so we're building an open data coalition for soil, for forests, um, for water, for biodiversity. And 
we're trying to also bring in ways, and we haven't totally solved this, of anonymizing data and doing sort of a data give to data get. So if you want to retain some of your competitive advantage, um, you know, to submit data into the system in order to be able to get access to the full global model. So, and thank you for, for sharing uh, sharing that. Uh, in terms of business, like, uh, I mean, I totally understand uh, what the measurement phase now, uh, and then there's going to be the second phase, getting, uh, giving access to all of those data. But what is the business model that you guys have, uh, have in mind uh, behind that and, and eventually like the, the economics behind the Earthshot uh, Labs? Totally. So in a, in a sentence, the business is taking commissions on carbon credits generated through the system. So on top of this open source data modeling work, um, LandOS is a not, not going to be an open source app. And the biggest reason is because we've never seen a really gorgeous product company that has delivered um, like open source products in a, in a gorgeous way, right? Think of Apple, for example, or... Um, or any, any other really gorgeous design product. So in order to actually achieve the mission, which is universal landowner access, we actually need to develop something that's super easy, well-designed and uh, attract really great engineers to that. So that will be a paid layer um, and other people will be also free to make a paid layer on top of this data. So LandOS will take commission on carbon credits. And if you think about an existing carbon credit project, about 96% of carbon credit revenue goes towards verifiers, auditors, project development costs, um, and execution costs. So about 4% of the revenue actually like comes out as profit to the landowner. And that's ridiculous. Like why is, uh, why is it not 100% of costs go to the landowner and to the actual reforestation efforts? So, it's taking the cost of project development, verification and auditing from anywhere between three and $500,000 down to zero. So it has to be carbon as a service. It can't be uh, going through this proprietary complex consultant process. So democratizing access to carbon markets, there's a massive, massive um, opportunity for, for providing low cost access and so we'll take a commission on carbon credits generated through the system. The second is that we're actually going to do on the ground operations as well. So part of the reforestation as a service is catalyzing um, a thousand different project operators around the world, or uh, let's say more than a thousand, but our first goal is a thousand to do reforestation as a service where we provide the full technology platform and the reforestation playbook of the methodology of how exactly you go about doing reforestation specific to your area, as well as get paid for it through carbon credits and other markets for ecosystem services. So providing a comprehensive suite of tools for anyone to be able to go do a profitable reforestation project and doing projects ourselves in, so we're starting a first project, a pilot project in Panama later this year uh, probably also Mexico by the end of the year. And there's a, there's a huge opportunity. This is a, you know, over the coming decades, this will be a multi-hundred billion dollar market, if not a multi-trillion dollar market for doing on the ground restoration projects. And these are hard, right? This is not a scalable tech solution. So one is catalyzing reforestation as a service for other people, and then learning a lot of lessons along the way as we actually figure out how to go do this in a scalable way. 
right? Amazon wasn't started by providing logistics support for other resellers. They actually did the logistics themselves because they actually realized, whoa, the level of scale and rigor and precision needed to go do this in a global way is really, it's really hard and it's really high level. So we need to bring that level of precision and rigor and scale to the parts of the chain for reforestation and conservation that have traditionally been done by like conservation organizations and NGOs that haven't viewed the problem with that sense of scale or precision. Okay. So I, I was looking at uh, your website and uh, you guys are mentioning this very ambitious goal in terms of, uh, you know, the, the goal for 2030. Uh, you're mentioning like 10 million acres uh, restored, 1 billion tons of CO2 uh, sequestered and 100 billion <clears throat> gallons water restored. So can you tell us a little bit like uh, more about like how do you guys uh, plan to achieve those, uh, those goals and what needs to happen to, uh, to reach those goals by uh, 2030? We actually think those goals, while they may seem ambitious, are totally reachable. One is if we can provide landowner access to carbon credit markets and access to the information needed to go make regenerative decisions on their land, we're going to catalyze so much action. I mean, we, we see the power of, an, of financial incentives all around in sort of the opposite direction, people planting palm oil plantations and doing deforestation because of incentives. So reversing those um, into conservation will be very powerful. So one is landowner access. The second is doing our own reforestation in a small way, um, which is really not the bulk of those numbers. The bulk of those numbers is in catalyzing other people's projects. And water restoration. So let's consider an arid landscape like Australia or the Western US or Southeast uh, Europe um, or Central Africa, for example, to do a million tiny little check dams around a landscape will have massive, massive effects on total water supply available for agriculture, available for managed aquifer recharge, available for wildlife, and that will, have, that will have consequences for reforestation potential. So let's, another, another example, land in Australia is cheap. And it's cheap because cattle have grazed it to nothing where there's no topsoil left. Whenever it rains, the water creates these massive floods that wash away even more topsoil. And none of that water actually sinks into the aquifer. So to slow down that water cycle, um, capture the water on the land, let it percolate down, uh, restores the water cycle, restores the possibility for revegetation, increases the value of land maybe from like $50 to $400 uh, an acre to more like $1,000 to $5,000 an acre. Um, probably the biggest land ar arbitrage opportunity in the world. Um, this is the this is like the biggest opportunity and the biggest challenge on earth right now, restoring ecosystems at scale. So we're just providing tech tools for other people to do it and for ourselves to do it in a way that is financially viable. And um, yeah, it's big. 
It's super big. Congrats. So uh, maybe let's go back just a little bit, uh, zooming out uh, in terms of the uh, of the company. So what are the, the challenges uh, that uh, you guys are facing today, and, and maybe the opportunities uh, for the the coming uh, coming years? Yeah. So our team, we we've worked a lot of successful companies before. I mean, you think of like Google and Airbnb and Two Sigma and like. Um, you know, raised venture capital, done the whole sorts of private equity stuff, raised, you know, debt and infrastructure financing. We really want Earthshot to be funded in a way that is in alignment with our values for the coming decades. Because this is not an easy fix problem. Climate change won't go away after a few years of us doing reforestation. This is a decades long problem of ecological restoration, of restoring humans' relationship with nature. Um, and so we're going to be in this for a very long time. And our community is so passionate about being in this for a very long time. It means our funders need to be passionate for being in this for a very long time. And it doesn't mean they're not going to make massive returns. It means that we want to collect a group of the coolest shareholders on earth that we want to be talking to a lot for the next 20 years and being a part of strategic conversations and retreats as we design the carbon credit system of the future, as we learn how to do operations, you know, as we learn all the complexities that go into cultural and community relationships all around the world. This is not an easy problem. This is a hard problem. And, and we're doing it in a way that we think is pretty creative, where that gives shareholders liquidity if they need to exit, so a built-in secondary market, um, but also retains the integrity of, of alignment. So right now we're offering non-voting shares to most shareholders um, through a tokenized rolling safe note. So it's tokenized, so it's easily transactable on a secondary market, um, but they're non-voting shares. So you can sell them to anybody without it having uh, basically like whatever minority shareholder rights for trying to change the ecological focus of the business. Or when we do things that maybe are uh, in the short term, not the best economic decision, like, okay, we're going to uh, donate X percent to indigenous reciprocity um, because we believe that's the right thing to do. Some shareholders could potentially argue against that. And we want to be able to continue to make decisions that we believe are in the best long-term interest of the business, as well as the best long-term interest of the ultimate mission, which is full planetary ecological restoration. Fantastic. So any, anything that the, the community of listeners today uh, can do to, uh, to help you to make the, you know, the Earth Labs, Earth Earth Labs uh, growing? Totally. The first is become a contributor. If science and technology for ecological restoration is something that excites you, just go to our website, go to the Slack channel, join up, join the weekly welcome call, find a project team. It's an amazing community of really deeply experienced mentors, technologists, academics. Uh, you'll meet a ton of different people and whether it's to work on your own project and find employees and you know do it for your own thing, that's also okay. Like this is also a non-competitive space that's not just for us. So join the Slack community. The second is become an investor. Right now we're only accepting uh, investments from accredited investors. Um, however, uh, in a few months, we'll probably open up to all investors through a reg CF raise just to 
increase stakeholder engagement. So just join the waiting list or click invest. It takes about 10 minutes through the website, super easy process. Um, and you'll become part of literally the coolest group of shareholders I've ever met. Um, and so if that sounds like you, you have deep ecological, ecological commitment um, and interest in this space and experience in machine learning or being a landowner or policymaker or strategic advisor in this space, please go to the website and sign up or just give us a call. And there's a bunch of other ways. Also large landowners or potential project developers um, will be releasing access to the platform in the coming months. Right now we're working on um, pilot projects on about 4 million acres of, around the world. But after the next six months, we'll be opening that up to all landowners. So if you are a landowner that wants to do restoration, whether reforestation or becoming eligible for carbon credits, also go to the website, send us a note, and we'll be releasing sort of a waiting list for landowners in the coming month as well. Fantastic. So any, any question that I did not ask you that I, I should have for the, the first part of the interview? That's a great question. Um, I think I feel good. Thank you so much, Troy. Thank you so much for uh, you know uh, spending the time with us, uh, sharing uh, the, the 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 scale of this uh, this amazing uh, amazing project uh, that you are doing uh, and very important for for the the, the planet uh, planet Earth. Um, this uh, this is really really exciting. I'm looking forward uh, to the the the, the new uh, upcoming outcomes uh, and also I think this new uh, way of like opening up uh, the company to to uh, everyone it's also something uh, fascinating uh, you with them uh, with them uh, as well so thank you so much for uh, joining us